Gaming and BS episode 158, coming to you Tuesday, September 26th, 2017. All right, welcome to Gaming and BS, a tabletop RPG podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett. Welcome back to the show. Glad to have you all back on board. Oh, we've got a special guest this show. Exactly. So let's see. He is an author. He's written Hero Clicks and Pomp, which is a really cool book. He has produced um, Beyond the Silver Scream, a little DCC module. And uh, you know him, you love him, Forrest Gary. Hey, Forrest, how you doing, man? Whoa. I'm doing great. Thank you. So Forrest had given us the topic idea for the show, and uh, Sean and I were noodling on it. I'm like, you know what? We know this guy. His name's Forrest. He gave us a topic for Christ's sake. Let's pull him on. And uh, he's the Madison kid. We could talk about this. So we got him on board. And uh, as we've done before, we'll uh, use him as we need him and then cast him aside as so much chaff once we're done. So that's the story of my life. <laughs> All right. So announcements. Let's see. GameholeCon uh, registrations still uh, going down. I think the pre-reg is closing down pretty quick, though. So if you haven't, if you're not going to GameholeCon.com and you're in the Madison area, the hell's wrong with you? Um, get there. Forrest will be there. Sean, I'll be there. A host of really cool, fun gaming people will be there. Um, check it out. GameholeCon.com, of course. Sean, anything else you want to add about Gamehole? Uh, Uber. The Uber is available. Email GamingNBS at gmail.com if you need a ride from the Madison airport. Uh, the th- uh, Thursday of GameholeCon. Uh, beer, we have our ad done, so free beer Saturday night, um, show up at the Clarion, I believe that kicks off around the 8 o'clock hour. There's a uh, beer exchange on Friday, is there not? There is, I haven't propagated that, uh, as, as well as we should. Is but that we like slept. a hostage exchange? Kind of. Uh, it's kind okay. of yes, like but, but the, with more alcohol. But, but with beer. <laughs> Um, let's see. Oh, uh, Evercon, the gaming convention that I help run in central Wisconsin in the Wausau area. That is happening in January, uh, first part of the year. So as I like to say, you're going to start your year off right. Go to gaming convention and get somewhere warm, huddle up with your buddies and game. Um, Evercon.org, Evercon.org. Uh, submissions pre-reg is open, uh, the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's a three day con. It's 35 bucks if you pre-reg. Otherwise, it's a little bit higher at the door. Uh, so be cool. Pre-reg, get your game in there and do some cool stuff. I was just talking to uh, Corey Wynn, a uh, friend of the show, a supporter of the show, and Corey's going to step up and um, come on down. He was there last year with a couple of his brothers and some of his kids, so I think he and the daughters are coming again this year, so that'll be a lot of fun. Cool stuff happening. Um, let's see, my Avalon Kickstarter. Yes, I mentioned this last show. I had a meeting with John Arcadian, um, uh, Phil Vecchione, and Christine Zak of Encoded Designs fame, and... Then John and I had a follow-up afterwards. We're looking at right after the first of the year, so January 2018 is when we're going to kick that Kickstarter off. We're using the intervening time to make sure we've got some really good artists lined up. We've got all of our book production um, steps and processes ironed out, lined out, so that we know just what the hell we're doing. Last thing I want to do is be the guy who's bitched about 
Kickstarters they can't produce and then not be able to produce on my own fucking Kickstarter. So anyway, um, it's just the perfect time for us to make sure we have things lined up and some really cool art and uh, just trying to make the book the best we possibly can. So more details once I know the exact dates, but it is still in process and uh, had a really good time working with uh, John Arcadian just talking about art and stylistically what it needs to look like and so on. So that was a lot of fun. First time I've done that type of thing in the past, uh, before, so that was a lot of fun. Forrest, what were you telling? You were babbling about something coming down. What do you got going, man? Yeah, well, as if we don't have enough uh, conventions going on. We've got GaryCon coming up in the spring. It's never too early to prepare for that. Um, event registration's open. Uh, I'm going to be running a couple things. Are you guys planning on running anything there? Do you know yet? I last The last couple years I've been to GaryCon, I have not run. After coming off of Gamehole and then running Evercon, <laughs> GaryCon has been like yeah. my relaxed hangout con where I just get to yeah. like see you at the bar, get a get a drink or a soda or dinner with folks and just kind of hang out. However, um, Dave Beatty had uh, convinced me that I should run a Wraith game at Gamehole Con. And then poor Mr. Beatty got shafted at the firehouse where he works and shift changes so he can't make it. So I'm oh, thinking no. I'm going to run a Wraith game down at uh, at GaryCon. It'll be GaryCon 10, so it'll be a big damn yes. event anyway, so it'll be cool. Yeah, it'll be a big deal. Sean, you're going. I haven't, I haven't decided whether yeah, I'm going to go. I haven't decided what I'm going to run if I run. I haven't. Have I run at GaryCon? trying to think if I have. I haven't seen you run anything there. I had. I didn't last year, and the year before, I don't know. I can't remember if I have. Honestly, we can make up for it. <laughs> yeah, plenty of time, right? <laughs> but yeah, Gary, Gary Con uh, is a heck of a good convention too. Just from uh, the uh, what do I want to say, kind of the meet and greet, the really friendly atmosphere of it all. I mean, that's how I, I had met Forrest before at Gamehole Con, but at Gary Con was when we had plenty of downtime. He and I had a chance to just shoot the shit for hours on end about about gaming and just random stuff. So that's the type of thing that I look forward to at GaryCon. It's always But it's fun. it's also the notorious place for Happy Salmon, for disturbing other people. <laughs> oh, game of Happy Salmon, right? That turned into pretty much like a, a small-scale riot. Yeah, that was... <laughs> Yeah, when Doug Kovacs looked over and he was just about ready to like start knifing people, that was about time well, for was, us to... He was stomping around on the ground and screaming, literally. <laughs> so he just started kind of mocking us, but uh, hey, that's all right. Doug, he'll get over it. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, he wasn't very happy. Uh, Gary Khan <laughs> is March 8th to the 11th, 2018, in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Beautiful venue, by the way. It is. The old, Playboy the, old, the old Playboy Club. Yeah, yeah, it's gorgeous down there. All right. All right, shall we random encounter it up? We should random encounter. Oh, my God, where's random encounter? Random encounter. Uh, fielding emails, voicemails, comments from social media, comments on 157, not 158. Right, you want to start out with Tony? Yeah, Tony Sugarloaf Baker, patron of the show. He writes in and says, you guys did a great job with this topic. Holy crap, I haven't heard that in a while. That was really nice. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> um, I think this is there's often a misconception that all the work for a good time falls on the GM. Well, there's a lot of work for the GMs running the game. Um, they do not hold responsibility for everyone's good time. The players need to express themselves clearly and concisely and take ownership of their own fun. Uh, it is a group social activity, and good communication is a requirement. 
I've seen many game sessions and sometimes campaigns fall apart because of poor communication. It's important for players to repeat themselves if they don't think they're being heard and repeat themselves in a different way if they don't think they're being understood. And in the reverse, the GM and fellow players should watch for players uh, to show signs of frustration and address them as soon as possible. You know, I, I agree with that. One of the things I have found, excuse me, that I... My games became better when I was reading the social cues instead of saying, boy, Forrest over there seems frustrated. Eh, if he is, he'll speak up. <laughs> it's become a hell of a <laughs> lot easier to say, Forrest, what are you thinking, man? And have him say, well, I'm really angry right now, or I really don't like this, or I don't understand the point. I've never had Forrest in a game to yell at me like that, but I would I, much I rather. Eventually. eventually. I would much rather directly, when you see those social cues, ask, um, and even as a player, I've done that many times to prod other people at the table to get them talking about stuff as, as opposed to brooding or being disengaged. So that's a good point. I think Tony's got some good stuff there. And, of course, Sean, that holds right on to your standard line is that players are slack-ass bastards, and it's not just the Game Master job to entertain them. I think that would be uh, summing it up rather nicely, Brett. <laughs> we haven't heard from Tony for a while. Hey. Hey, Tony, thanks for letting us know you're alive, buddy. Absolutely. Sean, you can have the next one. All right. Blake Ryan writes, good day, fellas. Glad to hear Sean is doing well. Soon he can stop Brett from hiding in a tree and teach him to hunt. Kidding. Regarding wear and tear on armor, D&D. If characters don't need to repair gear after encounters with gelatinous cubes and rust monsters, then you are being way too easy on them. In the original version of Dark Sun, the bone and wood weapons had breakage chance since they were less durable than metal, and armor was in pieces because metal was rare, but upgrading armor was important. One option to invert the magical equals indestructible trope is a curse on the land that suddenly makes the magic decay the items instead of enhance them. Great way to level the playing field, like the end of Escape from L.A. In most D&D and Shadowrun games, you don't have to worry about maintaining weapons and armor much because you are constantly upgrading your gear after every other mission. People refer to movies for never-ending ammo, but a good example is the movie Heat. Every gunfight, they change ammo. It's part of the tension. So fumbles in gunfights can go... Whoops. So fumbles in gunfights can be gun jams, barrels overheating, or clips running out. Every fumble does not have to be friendly fire. Love the show. Keep it up. I think is I think as you know, as usual when our listeners are right in and take the time to tell us stuff, Blake's got good points, right? You know, when what what we talked about last show, you know, just having different things happen to gear and wear it down. And sometimes the you know, the magical equals indestructible trope, if you do invert it, as he talked about, that's an interesting way to go as well. Um, but just kind of making making that stuff seem a little more important. And I do love the idea of, and I've had that many times with, you know, fails or, um, what do I want to say, fumbles or whatever, you know, barrels overheat, guns jam, clips run out, you reach back for that last arrow, but your quiver's empty. Well, you know, all that stuff is, I think that's good. Or even even had fumbles where, you know, the, the straps in your armor crack and or something along those lines. All that stuff can play. So that's good. I like it. All right. What do we got next? Ah, Krim Fan. Krim Fan says, your theme sh- song should be I've Got You by Sonny and Cher. Oh, thanks, Krim Fan. 
<laughs> Obviously, charged magic items like magic ammo wear out, and I used to do a weapon broken on a fumble as an option, too. But uh, now I can say I've played tabletop games that have equipment wear and tear as a default part of the game, although I'm sure there are some ultra-realistic fantasy heartbreakers that have it. Oh, but I cannot say I've played those games. He's saying he hasn't played one. He's sure there are some ultra-realistic ones that do have it. He continues to say, part of it may be the annoyance level of relevant bookkeeping. It's not at all uncommon in uh, CPRG, uh, CPRGs, though, where the computer is handling the bookkeeping for you. Uh, Fallout had equipment damage, for instance, at least in Fallout 3, New Vegas, and 4. Uh, it would have to work like this kind of thing in a game that was designed to have a gritty setting. I could see it in a game like Cubicle 7's Adventures of Middle-Earth or some other low-fantasy setting where the challenge of the environment is as, is as important a part of the game as the challenge of combat. There's even a precedent in the Middle-Earth source material. Thorn Orc and Shield's epithet comes from having a shield broken at the Battle of... Oh, good God. Azan Ulblizar, I think, yes... I'll go with that. At which point, I, I can never do those. Anyway, at which point he picked up a club, uh, a piece of oak to replace it, which is very true. So, yeah, I think in, um, I was going to, and this is Forrest, I'm glad you're here. Um, Forrest also <laughs> does the uh, Globerin podcast, knows a bit about, say, Gamma World, post apocalyptic. Forrest, in those game systems, which you have played a hell of a lot more and pay much more attention to than mm-hmm. Sean or I do, how, are, how do they deal with um, equipment damage and such? Well, there's not necessarily uh, something on equipment damage unless you fumble uh, in for like mutant crawl, mutant crawl classics. You can have a gun fall apart. Uh, in fact, as I recall, the one of the first times I ran that, um, uh, Wayne uh, Humphrey shot your the character that had your name. Oh no, it was yeah, his daughter. Brett, his daughter. It was his daughter shot Bretsky, yeah. and then the gun Bretzky. fell apart in her hands right then and there. So it was like dead and gone. Um, but usually it's when you're rolling uh, to determine the condition of the items ahead of time that you have those planted. So, the, I mean, of course, the difficult part is keeping track of all of it, right? You know, you've got 10 bullets and three of them are bad. One of the bad ones come up. Um, and there are different mechanics to, to take care of that. But really, any post-apocalyptic game, uh, well, most post-apocalyptic games are going to have some kind of a, a mechanic where you're going to have failures, you're going to have duds. Um, you're going to have, you know, the, the, the weapon you're using, the armor you're using is just plain not going to operate. And that's a pre-existing condition. That's not something that happens, uh, over time with wear and tear. However, however, um, Reed San Filippo is doing the uh, American survival guide for crawling under a broken moon, DCC. And he has a new, he has a new armor. Um, I was just looking at it last night, actually. Um, he has a new, uh, armor methodology where, um, Oh boy, I don't want to take all the time to explain it, but uh, essentially you, you have some ablative armor. You, you could, you know, like uh, you want to do the Mad Max thing and throw hockey pucks on your elbows to make you safe. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, that's yeah. only going to last one time, <laughs> right? They're going to get knocked off and then there goes your armor. And so your elbows are exposed at that point. So he has a, he has a full system for it. That's a, it's, it's really intriguing and I'm really curious to see how it plays out. We'll be at, at uh, Game Hole when I'm running. Uh, we'll be using that system. So it should be fun. But I think- yeah, there's... It's built into that. I think the, uh, as Crimfan points out, the relevant bookkeeping, right? That's the thing that yeah. generally keeps me, and Sean and I talked about this uh, last episode too, but it, it generally keeps folks from going too crazy because it's just more 
fucking numbers to track and whatever. But if there is a better, more creative way to do it, it's great when you can have a computer game do it for you. Obviously, you've got AI or whatever running in the background takes care of all that shit. Another way to do it is if you have a luck mechanic, you just check your luck. And yep. if you roll unlucky, your armor falls apart or your sword breaks yeah. or whatever. That's an easy way yeah, to do it can. if you have a luck mechanic. Yeah, something on yeah, something on those lines. Yes, that could be easy. Then just making sure that it happens that that is checked on a regular basis. It's not a hard thing to pull up, pull through. I like that. Pretty mm-hmm. cool. Sean, anything there, man? No. All right, you can have Chris Johnson. Uh, that one. All right. Uh, do we want to go into the the guys on Google Plus? Oh sure, yeah, do that. <laughs> so we'll go alternate. So Jared Rasher on Google Plus on the same episode says, in a game like D&D 5th Edition where you have flaws that you can take, you could turn this around from being the DM's responsibility and make it the player's. The player has a flaw such as can't be bothered with mundane things. It would probably be worth inspiration for that player to voluntarily ruin a perfectly good longsword and waste their first turn of combat realizing that they hadn't taken care of it. In that situation, it's a narrative thing that makes sense in the setting, but it's not something you are tracking with each person. And of course, in more narrative games, you can do this with things like giving yourself the aspect of shit for gear or something and invoking it when you waste a round realizing you can't contribute to the scene because your gear is worthless. I, I, we talked about it last time and I really like the narrative approach sometimes more than a raw mechanical approach, but, um, the, narrative slash luck mechanic thing that Forrest just mentioned is cool too. Plus these aspect types of things bring some mechanical component to the game, but also really help force the descriptive narrative component of it. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then Jim Fitzpatrick chimed in and said the black hack has depletion dice for gear like torches and arrows. And it does. Jim, I should have totally remember that. I have the black hack. It's a really cool game. It starts at, say, a D10, and every time you use the thing, you roll the die. If you roll a 1, the die reduces to the next uh, next die down. If you're at a D4 and roll a 1, too bad. You could totally do that with weapons and armors, too. Roll it once a day. Uh, I thought about writing a program to see how long gear would last, but it seemed like a lot of work. <laughs> Extra shitty day? Roll it twice. Easy day on the caravan where you have no encounters? Skip a day. Yeah, it's bookkeeping, but it creates dyn- dramatic moments. Uh, sorry if you answered this the last 18 minutes of the episode, but couldn't bother with waiting until the end. Uh, Jared Rasher, sa- he says uh, he loves the idea of making it an aspect out of it. I take out my bow and shoot the dragon. Not with those arrows, you don't. Tosses over a fate point. It's like the inverse aspect of Kendra Pockets. I like that. <laughs> Roger Braslett, I've long had an unused idea for a Warhammer Fantasy roleplay that armor could withstand an amount of damage equal to its cost in gold pieces before the armor was unusable. You can get it repaired at any time if you have the money and the availability of an armor. That would totally fit with the Warhammer milieu, right? Where it's that grim, dark, everything sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it totally fits there. Um, let's see here. Oh, uh, John Henry not only was also going to mention the black hack, but he says also of note is how Dungeon World handles ammunition in the volley move. And how the GM uh, uh, can uh, generally run down PC equipment using DM moves. I'm not a huge uh, Dungeon World aficionado, but that does make sense based on the few times I have been able to play it. Uh, Michael P. on those tricky ammo rules. I remember that the recent Gamma World, the one that used 4th edition rules, had a binary system. You had ammo or you didn't have ammo. You could fire once in an encounter 
and still have ammo after the encounter. If you fired more than once, you might as well keep firing because you'd be out of ammo after the encounter. Also, ammo was considered generic. If you found quote-unquote ammo, you had it for whatever you were armed with. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. 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 I've ne- I cannot recall the last time. I think the last time I played Gamma World was first edition, maybe second. Mm-hmm. We back never. then, but I've never played the fourth, so I am not familiar with that. That's an interesting approach. Never, never played Gamma World. Hmm. All right, yeah. and last, Michael Phillips says with regard to um, uh, VC Young's question, uh, two places he might look are Cipher System and Pathfinder Society. Um, Cipher System lets you spend XP to do things like establish a home or learn a new narrow skill. It would be easy to expand that into a kingdom management system. Permanent effects um, come from role-playing or resource spends. Uh, Pathfinder Society tracks prestige points, a thing you get a few of each adventure, and there's a chart of things you can spend them on, including creating a home, getting your body retrieved and resurrected if you die in a mission, buying minor magic items, almost all, always a wand of cure light wounds, and a bunch of other things off a list. You could certainly expand that list to include uh, the insert options into a hex crawl options. Hmm, interesting. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Very cool. So the last bit was Chris Johnson, who posed the question quite a while ago, and we haven't we haven't uh, brought it up. So he he says, "Hey guys, first of first off, Sean, I was very sorry to hear about your accident. Thank you. Uh, glad to hear you and your wife are on the mend and you are back in action. So thank you so much, Chris, for the sentiments." Uh, I have recently been hearing a lot about West Marches campaigns. In fact, a GM in a Facebook group I'm in recently set up a Star Wars game, Edge of the Empire, in this style, which was the first I'd heard about it. And then another podcast I occasionally listen to did a whole series on the topic. I'd like to know your thoughts on this campaign style and would like to know if you've ever run one. What would be your tips for putting one together? I hope you'll do a show on the topic. Thanks, guys. Chris, not a guy, Johnson. You know, um, Matt Colville had a, has a really good uh, YouTube video on the West Marches style campaign. So I've heard a, I, there's stuff about it that is very similar to things I've done in the past as well. I think it would definitely be worth a show to talk about it because it's a different type of approach to a campaign that – once I heard it defined uh, and described by Colville and a couple other folks, it seems to make sense from a – I don't know if we have time to play this week or I can't get the whole group together. It seems like a really good tool slash mechanism to help keep a campaign going even when you have uh, limited or alternate types of turnout for a game session. So I think it'll uh, it'll definitely go on the list, Chris. I'm going to throw it on the list, and uh, we'll see what we can do to hit it. Cool. All right. Let's get into the main topic. Let's do it. Wow, that was really flipping loud. <laughs> <laughs> it won't it won't be when they listen to it, but God blasted all my ears. Anyways, uh All right, so Brett this is touched a little bit on the topic. Go ahead, Brett. Yeah, I was gonna say this topic is all forced to Gary's fault. That's why we got him here so we can Speak directly to us. Um, but his question his question came to us over Twitter. He said, you know, what's the difference between writing and running an adventure? Um, Forrest has written um, adventures before uh, for publication, and I'm starting to do some of that. 
for the <coughs> excuse me for the Avalon setting um, that I'm going to do, as I mentioned before, with the Kickstarter. I have um, my Iron Shoes adventure and a couple other things I'm working on, and I don't. There's always that thing where I, I've run I've run the pre-written adventure and you, you you pull it together you run it and as they say you know right no no adventure survives first contact with the players but what um, and then you will hear people say hey I'm writing an adventure and my first thought is oh you're going to publish it they're like no 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 everybody it feels like is using the term writing um, as opposed to designing when I was a kid if you were Setting up an adventure for your friends to go through, you were either building or designing a thing. You weren't writing. Writing was always referred to, or at least in my group, writing was a reference to a novelist or a short story person. If you were building an adventure, you were it was a much more mechanical feeling, like you're a a, a laborer or some master craftsman who is building this thing. Um, so anyway, let's uh, let's kind of crack into this thing. So Forrest, from your perspective. What does it mean to you when you when somebody says they're going to write an adventure? What what is the if I say, "Hey, I'm writing an adventure," do you immediately think publication, personal use? How do you what what uh, what does that evoke in your brain? I, I you know I I do jump to the publication right there right out, right off the bat, um, and I, I guess the reason is mostly because of context. Because when I've heard people mention this in the past, um, it's often uh, a person saying. You know, I really want to write an adventure, but I don't know if I have the writing chops. I don't know if I can do it. You know, there, there, it's, it's kind of a general lack of confidence, I guess. Um, and so there's, there's this, in, in the context of the conversations I've had, it's been people wanting to write for publication. Um, you know, the, the, the internet makes that a lot easier now. Um, and there are plenty of publication platforms out there, so it's it's available to way more people than it used to be. You know, back when I started, nineteen seventy nine, man, you had to <clears throat> go to your local toy or hobby shop or bookstore to find anything, and and nobody else was really publishing things because it cost too much money. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you know, if it wasn't a hard if it wasn't a hard print, it didn't it didn't exist, right? There was no such thing as electronic copies of things. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, who could afford a copy? I mean, people were doing the the, the blue ink photo stat back then. You know, nobody could even afford a copier. Um, <laughs> so that's changed pretty dramatically, obviously. And I think, um, you know, in the context of today, when I hear somebody say they want to write an adventure, um, that's that's what I think of. Sean, when when you hear that, if someone's gonna if someone's writing an adventure, do you get the same thing that Sean does, or what do you? How does it how does it hit you? You mean the same? You mean the same as Forrest does? Yes. Did I say? Oh God, what am I saying? Anyway, Forrest. <laughs> yes. Jesus. <laughs> All right. Uh, somewhat. I most of the times when I hear somebody wanting to write an adventure, they, they I don't I don't assume that they're looking to publish it. Like I, I think when they're writing an adventure, they're just writing something for their home group. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but it, that's not. But that's just my only assumption, right? It's not because they're conveying it in a particular manner. I just go, oh, okay, cool. Uh, what are you doing on homebrew? Oh, that's awesome, cool. Um, but some may stipulate I'm writing an adventure to publish, or I may ask them, oh, is that are you publishing that? Are you putting it out on the guild or or what? And then. Then it kind of goes from there. Well, I think there's Makes there's sense. also a lot of there's a lot of writing out there that's been written for personal use that we'll never see the light of day public, publishing wise. You know. Oh, absolutely. That, absolutely. It, but but it may be it may be as high a quality or higher quality than some things that are published. 
I would not doubt it. <laughs> That's it's true. It's kind. Of, I, I, I'm not going to say it's a moot point, but um, uh, I guess the the whether you're intentionally writing for a publication or just writing for your homebrew kind of informs the way that at least the way I write. Because um, when I'm writing for personal use, I'm you know, I've got a lot more. <clears throat> I know my own brain. I know my own players, so I have a lot more um, leeway. I don't have to be as explicit about things as writing for publication. Does that make sense? That's- that totally does. I think one of the one of the pieces that I have found is that people who, even if you are freeform, you know, ad hoc, off the cuff game master, which I tend to be, you mm-hmm. still know certain you, you still know what you like. And if I pick up an adventure, and I say, "Wow, this thing's on fucking rails. There's no way I can really do this without beating the hell out of it." Eh, it may not necessarily be for me, or yeah, I'm going to just GM over the top of this fucker and make it work. You still know, no matter how you're writing, designing, whatever you're doing for your home group, it gives you a basis for what you like. So I th- I would think, or at least that my approach is, is being right now, is that as I'm taking the things I like and I'm making sure to include those components along with the extra bits that I have to, well, at least I feel I need to put into something that, that will be published to make sure that it's very clear for somebody who's not Brett. Right. Mm-hmm. I could make a, a series of notes that says, oh, this happens, then this or, you know, bullet point items with just big names and terms that totally evoke something to me. You have to be a little bit more descriptive because unless you're in my head and you're me, it ain't going to mean shit to you. So yeah. I, I get what you're saying for us where you've got to take it. And if it's going to be for publication, there needs to be more more to it. Right. Just so that the person understands just what the hell you mean when you say whatever it is you're saying. Right, and, and and the fact of the matter is, you know, you said earlier, no adventure survives first contact with the players. That's that's very true, <clears throat> but also, no written published adventure survives first contact with the reader. I mean, I really, I, I I can't, I can't think the last time I ran. I think maybe the first time I ran, um, uh, uh what's a B two the the early module that came with Redbox, um, Keep on the Borderlands. Yes, that, that's probably the last time that I actually ran an adventure as written, you know, that was like 1980. <laughs> so since then, I, I pretty much, you know, I'll, I'll run, I'll run another module. Um, I've run lots of modules cause they're convenient and handy and, 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 and easier to prepare for. Um, but I almost always tweak it. And, and partly because there's expectations, you know, if you've, if you've read tomb of horrors and you know, everything in it going through tomb of horrors is not nearly as horrible. Right. No, no. Then it just becomes, oh, fuck, one more time. You know? Right. <laughs> just... But if the but if the, the person running it has tweaked it just a little tiny bit here and there, then it throws people into fits, which is just hilarious. I I get a kick <laughs> out of it crazy. anyway. No, I, I have uh, I had a group of guys I was playing with. My buddy Lenny had uh, changed up Return to the Tomb, uh, excuse me, Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil. He mm-hmm. had modified it a little bit because he looked at the one vampire, anti-paladin, ass-kicking, thrommel guy, and went, holy shit, he's basically a monster in a room? He went, oh, this is, he's like, Monty, 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 because Monty Cook wrote it. Yep. And he's like, man, you 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 left too much on the table there. So he took it and ran with it. And we had a couple of players in the group who were pissed at that because they're like, well, you, we didn't beat the module, or we could have beat the module, but you made it so we couldn't. Type of thing. <laughs> or people get cranky about that, so, as you say. I do think, though, what you just said there is no adventure survives first contact with the reader is interesting because, Sean, have you had this where you've read something and you're like, oh, this is how this adventure plays, and you've talked to somebody else who has also played it, and then they 
they took it somewhere totally different just from a misunderstanding or different interpretation of the of what they read? Yeah, that's not uncommon. I I don't think when you talk to folks that have run, it's kind of the, it's interesting when you take a pre-published adventure that becomes popular. So say the Tomb of Annihilation is out now for 5e from Watsi. Yep. And you it's getting, I'm sure, you know, there's players on Twitch that are running it. There's home games that are running it. And then you get to a con and you're like, oh, what are you running? Or even people that we've interacted with on Twitter and say, hey, what are you doing? What are you playing? And they're like, oh, playing 5e. Oh, are you running? Yes. What are you running? Tomb of Annihilation. And then once the conversation starts, it's like, Oh, okay. Well, how, how, what's going on or what, how far are you? And then they'll state, yeah, we, well, my players went to here and then they didn't want to go to this place. So what I had to do is, you know, X or Y. So it's almost like whenever us in the industry as game masters run an adventure, every time we run it for a different group, it's never quite exactly the same. And then comparing those notes always seems to be interesting. I love hearing about it because I could kind of take a mental note and go, oh, that's pretty freaking cool. I would want to do that even if my players don't go down that path. That's really – I like that. Yeah, and I think the other thing that what you're saying there is also really important is that if you're writing an adventure, um, it feels to me like there's – especially if it's for publication, is that being that it's open to interpretation is fine – if you can stick, and Forrest will correct me if I'm way crazy here, but if you have certain themes or or feels or whatever that you want, but is it's going to be open to interpretation. It won't survive contact with the players or the reader, and that's fine. Accept that. Don't believe that you're creating this thing that will be followed line by line or you know train stop by train stop. Let it, <laughs> you know, let it do its thing. I think if you if you can write with that end in mind. You'll probably end up with a better, better reading and better playable adventure. Forrest, what do you, what is that? What do you think of that? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. Somebody on Twitter just the other day, <clears throat> uh, just a couple days ago, I was looking and they had mentioned. They said something like, "I've talked to dozens and dozens of GMs across all all different um, uh, systems and so on and so forth." And the number one thing that I find with everybody who I talk to, the number one skill that a, a DM has to uh, master is being able to fly by the seat of the pants. That that's the number one thing that you can develop as a game master to be a better game master, and I think that's that's true because yeah, you're. I mean, attention spans are short, right? <laughs> yes, people true. are going to do what they want to do, and they and they should because you know they're running, they're they're playing a character, and that character may make decisions that would run counter to anything that the original writer of the adventure thought would happen. Am I confusing everybody yet? <laughs> no, that that totally makes sense, and that actually brings up a thought in my head. I'm going to jump on you here for a second, Forrest. Mm-hmm. When you write, do you think of a pre? Do you ever do pre-gen characters, or is that something you don't even think of? Well, okay. Um, when I'm writing an adventure, okay. Well, let me let me go back to Beyond the Silver Screen because that's an easy one. Mm-hmm. Um, that one I I did up. Uh, you know, it's it's for for DCC for Dungeon Crawl Classics. And they have an occupation chart in the book, in the DCC book. Well, this was an adventure set uh, starting in the in the late 70s, early 80s with a bunch of teenagers. And so I had to change the occupation charts to match that, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not going to be a gong farmer. You're going to be a, a pizza delivery guy or whatever, you know, uh, your newspaper deliverer, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... <clears throat> 
in that way, it I, I wasn't there weren't pregen characters, but I kind of closed the scope of the pregen or the co- scope of the generation of characters, if you will. You Got know, it. so the, 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 here's here's the here's the milieu. Um, so yeah, in that way, I guess you could say I was forcing a pregen sort of, but not really. Because well, when I when I read some of the um. You read some of the adventures I'll have, like, oh, there's a bunch of pregens in the back. Mm-hmm. If that's done right, you look at those pregens and go, wow, I totally see why these five or four or eight or however many there are all fit this particular adventure. Yeah. And- I, the, well, and, and the part of the thing there, I think, at least with D&D in particular, is a lot of those modules were written as tournament modules. So they had so, yeah, pregen so tournament characters. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, these are these are the characters that... Whatever, you know, Gary Gygax or Dave Arneson or whoever rolled up for this adventure and probably handed out the character sheets. You know, so they were specifically meant for that. And I think if you're so if you're gonna write an adventure and you're I don't mind having the writer, the author of the adventure, whatever it is, telling me, hey, you know, it would be really helpful. And I remember seeing this in the the old modules with from TSR and stuff saying, Hey, this is for X number to X to Y number of player characters levels this through this. It's oftentimes we tell you at the beginning, hey, look, it'd be really helpful if you had at least one from every major class, a thief, a fighter, a cleric, a wizard, right? If you have that, you're fine. (sighs) Maybe a paladin, but if you do, they would often give you these little crib pieces. Mm -hmm. And 99 times 100, I completely fucking ignored it. (laughs) My players did whatever they wanted to anyway. But... I think those little notes on the side, I think, honestly, as readers and consumers of game material now, I think, especially those of us who've been for, around for a while, are much more savvy about that stuff. And if we read that, we're like, oh, Forrest and Brett wrote this module, and um, one of the things that they put in there was, hey, you know, it would really be helpful if you had X type of PCs because they fit really well. Or nothing that has, you know, no Asimars, please, because it, it doesn't fit the setting. Or you're so going think, to need a cleric. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you need a healer in your group somewhere or else. So I think sometimes just having those, this kind of goes back to, Sean runs a lot more or has run more of the published adventures of the more modern design than, or mm-hmm. excuse me, more recent publication than I have. And when I picked up some of the ones he's talked about, a lot of them seem to have the very explicit to the game master, like, look, um, if you do X, Y, and Z, this will help you make this better. If you don't do these things, you you may have to make some tweaks, buyer beware. And I think that type of thing is very helpful. And I think that it's probably from a, a just directly addressing the reader saying, look, uh, here, man or woman or whomever, you're going to be reading this as the game master. Take these things into account so that when when you run it, you can get the most out of it. It seems to make sense to me to do that. Do you agree, Forrest, or what do you think? Yeah, I, I do, and and um, I think part of that, <clears throat> excuse me, part of that has to do with what kind of adventure you are writing, and by that I mean, are you writing something that's supposed to fit into a long-term campaign, a home campaign of somebody's, or are you writing something that's going to be at a convention? You have exactly four hours to to start and finish, um, because with four hours to start and finish, you better have pregens, um, unless your whole intent is just to roll up characters. Um, and I, I think of I think of uh, Call of Cthulhu comes to mind really immediately when I think of this sort of thing. They oftentimes in their adventures, they will have specific these are these are your characters. These are the five six characters. Pick one, 
and go with it um, because they need to have a certain skill set in order to succeed. Um, whereas if you're looking at some of their campaign pieces, especially the older ones for Call of Cthulhu, it's, it's open. It's, it's wide open. I mean, the NPCs are all set, of course, but for player characters, um, they might, like you said, they might suggest, well, you probably want to have somebody with the library use skill or, you know, you want to have somebody who can shoot a gun. Um, yeah, a lot but, of those Call of Cthulhu <laughs> campaign ones are basically reminding you, hey, um, this is a game about investigation and reading books. So if you have somebody who doesn't, if you don't have anybody in there who knows archaic languages, can't use a library, and doesn't know how to shoot a gun, uh, think again. <laughs> right, right. No, no, I haven't looked at, I, I, I have Trail of Cthulhu, but I haven't looked at, any, um, actually, I've got Bookhounds of London that I've been reading through slowly. Um, but I haven't looked at any of the adventures for Trail of Cthulhu to know if they do the same thing or not. If they if they put in there, you know, here are the characters. Use use these ones. Do, do you the, know that? Yes, the one I have. Shit, I can't remember the name of it, but it has birds. Um, and I ran it for I ran it for Sean and uh, and the crew there, Kevin and uh, and uh, Wayne were in that one too. But that, mm-hmm. they did have PCs, and what I did was I let the guys make characters, but I forced a, a connection to a certain place and time, uh, which helped make everybody glue together a little bit more. Hey, Sean, sure. when when you're reading when you're reading pregen modules and such, do you one? I guess do you like the do you like having pregens, and if so, why? And what do you think about the whole overtly telling the the game master, hey, um, here's some. Here's some boundaries you should keep in mind. Does that make sense to you, or do you think that's that's almost too railroady even for you? <laughs> yeah, it's um, oh, unless it's a con game, I could see pregens. But if you're doing more of a campaign, or maybe even a home game, if you're going to do a one shot, if it's a one shot, sure, pregens I think is certainly fine. If you have an adventure that's going to be based around, and you want to make sure that the characters that are in uh, your I guess proposed story or proposed kind of outline can get through it in a manner that uh, that has those characters in mind but I would say that if it was um, if it was something outside of the the one shot then people are going to want to play their own characters but then you have to adapt the adventure to consider that the group is not going to have the brainiac or not going to have the muscle or whatever, you know, elements is going to be thought of. Uh, you have to kind of account for it kind of like, um, in gumshoe where it's like, well, they're going to get a clue, but how are they going to get it? Are they going to get it from, so if they use this skill, they'll get it. If they use that skill, they'll get it. That way it kind of covers two or three people potentially. Um, that they're still going to uncover it and depending on how many points. So maybe it's typically if it's the person with the, the, the intelligence kind of trait, they may not have to spend as many points, but if, you know, there's a trade off in the economy thing. No, I get it. So you know, one thing, one thing that dawns on me is that <clears throat> with one shots, you can actually build the adventure around the characters. You do the pre-gens oh, and absolutely. Build, build it around there. I did that with, um, uh, what I ran at, at uh, GaryCon last year, I ran Gamma World First Edition. And, um, what I use there as an adventure actually is uh, speaking of publication, I just finished my first draft of uh, a killer of giants. It's a module for crawling under broken moon. And the gamma world thing I ran uh, last year at Gary con was a, a predecessor to that. And in that one, 
I actually, I, I decided first and foremost, I wanted the party to be all hoops, which are mutant rabbits, right? And uh, so I built the adventure around the fact that these are going to be mutant rabbits. And one of their abilities is they touch, if they touch a piece of metal, a meter long piece of metal, they can turn it to rubber. It's like, you know, Bugs Bunny touching Elmer Fudd's gun kind of oh thing. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so <clears throat> I thought, you know, they're going to this really a very high tech environment, lots of robots, androids, so on and so forth. They're armed with spears. That's it. Right. And everybody else has got laser guns, you know, and, and, or slug throwers or whatever. How do you, and, and that was kind of the whole shtick was how can, can these guys with this one really cool ability use their brains and, and use the, um, the situation that they're in and, and use their mutation um, to effectively make it through here without having all the guns and all the, all the hardware. And so I actually built the adventure around that idea. Um, and so, you know, certain puzzles, they had to use this mutation. If they didn't think to use the mutation, they didn't make it through the puzzle. So we'd have to go a circuitous route to, to get to their goal. I like the idea. And I think what you said there makes a lot of sense to me. And Sean, and I were talking about this with, when he was doing a Star Wars game at the one game we'll come, we're talking about the types of characters to put into the one shot. And mm -hmm. I honestly believe if you are going to write a run one shot and you are going to have pre-gen characters, I think, especially if you, even if you're not going to publish it, I think a very similar theme there is it should be about those characters. It should fit them completely. So when you have a God knows who you're bringing to the show to have a character set up versus these are the five player characters that are included in this one shot there. It's a convention game here. Take these and, and go with them. Every one of those characters should have very specific hooks and desires and needs and stuff that keeps them either together at odds with each other, whatever the theme of it is, but also be integral to the adventure itself. You shouldn't have anybody sitting there saying, well, I don't know why I have a doctor in this thing because it's all gunfights, right? right? That, that, <laughs> that shouldn't be. Um, so I think from a, from a writing perspective, both publication and personal use at a, uh, at a one shot type of scenario, I believe it's imperative that the characters for one shot are very tied into the adventure that's going to happen for them. There, there should be a damn good reason why they're there and they should all have plenty of opportunity for spotlight because they're, the encounter's built for them, you know? Right. Right. Agreed. So... Let me think about this. So when we, we talked about this kind of in, in broader terms for us when it comes to <coughs> excuse me, making sure that we're more overt or direct at the game master, whoever's reading the, the adventure itself. When you wrote when you when you were like uh, Beyond the Silver Scream, when you're just the one you're talking about, the giant one mm -hmm. and so forth, when you are making sure that the game master gets it and that they have all the right stuff, are there certain key pieces that you think of that says, hey, you know, normally for myself, it'd be a bullet point that says giant with big club. Do you make sure that you, is that, you know, what, do you, what are you looking to blow out? You know what I'm saying? What are you looking to add more? Because I'm not Forrester Gary. I don't know what you're thinking. I'm not in your head. How do you make sure that what's in your head is on the paper in the right places? Because we've all read that module where it's just been like some author's brain vomit of way mm -hmm. too much shit. You know, how mm -hmm. do you, how do you distill? What do you, what do you think is the most critical chunks to pull in? Yeah, there's, there's, it's a, it's an interesting balancing act <clears throat> because you have, um, you want to get your atmosphere across, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of key. I, I think in, in, in any games I've played, if, if the game doesn't have a, a compelling atmosphere, I don't want to be in it. I just have no desire. Yeah. But you don't want that to overwhelm <clears throat> the reader to the point where they can't pick out the details they need to relate to the players. So it's, it's actually, I, I, I will posit that writing, 
<laughs> writing games for publication is actually really hard work. Um, because you, again, yeah, like you said, you don't want to just vomit all your, um, all your foofy atmosphere stuff all over, but you want to have enough that, that you, you can paint a picture. But on the other hand, you have to have the mechanics be very clear. Um, that's, I mean, really the majority of my time on writing those, uh, uh, like with killer of giants, for example, was spent on purely mechanical things. Um, that's, that's the hard work. The, of, of writing for publication because you have to make it perfectly clear to a reader who you're, you're not going to be in the same room reading this to them and explaining it to them, right? Mm-hmm. They have to be able to just look at the paper and know. And um, that's not easy. So when you say mechanical components of it, let me think, let me ask you this. So oftentimes, at least when I've been writing like with Iron Shoes, I wrote a different Avalon adventure a while back. I would reference like you know, make a drowning check or make an X check or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Or are you talking about, or perhaps you're in addition to scenario specific mechanics that you have designed for that adventure? Yeah, talking I'm talking more, more scenario specific uh, uh, design. I'll, I'll give you an example. So in Beyond the Silver Scream, spoiler, there is a <laughs> a certain point where <clears throat> time um, becomes screwy, and it's random. It's random for each character. So you uh, pass beyond this certain area. And um, it's randomly determined what speed your character is doing things at. Um, and so it, it, that screws around with initiative. It screws around with combat, screws around with movement, and you have to pay really careful attention to it. So I had to make sure that I was very explicit in how that operated. So to try to make it as easy as possible, because I knew it was going to be chaotic. You know, that's, that's the whole uh-huh. point. It's, 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 it's like a temple of chaos type thing. But um, I wanted to be able to make it clear enough that, the um you know the, the the anybody reading it could understand okay this is how i do this this is how i keep track of this without making it so burdensome and for for me the real test was um when i when i uh, ran the module you know i ran it for playtesting earlier but i had a uh, kind of a after it was published um i don't want to call it a playtesting because playtesting was over but i really kind of put it to the test i suppose uh, at at gamehole and um I was, I had set it aside intentionally for a couple of months and then I picked it up and I was like, okay, can I, can I run this mechanic reading my own writing, right? I wrote this. <laughs> can I do this and do it effectively? And yeah, I could. I mean, it turned out just fine and people had a great time. Um, but that's kind of the test. It's that, that, that you know, play testing, in my opinion, that's really where the rubber hits the road. You know, do you, does this work in real life? Cause you can write all day long, but if you don't test it, you don't know if it's going to work and you don't want to be publishing a product and selling it and having people pay you money for it and then realize that your mechanics don't work. You know, I think that works. I mean, doubly so for a mechanic that you create yourself. If you create a mechanic yeah. to handle a very specific in, uh, piece, but I would not shortchange it either when it comes to even just standard mechanics, right? If I, Hey, I've, <clears throat> this is a good place for a swim check. This is a good place for this or that. And mm-hmm. you do something as wonky as saying, in a um, a difficulty class environment or whatever it is, saying, well, this is a DC-5 or a DC-25, or you, you apply either a too easy or too difficult of a difficulty check, or um, or you do something where you set the, the difficulty rating uh, wonky, right? Like, oh, mm-hmm. it's a minus five on the roll, when you're like, ah, fucking hell, minus five, man, no one's ever going to get this. Right. It's one of those pieces where, especially as as we've learned over the years, is that you'd never have a skill check 
that has the ability to stop the adventure cold, especially in a one shot. You really don't want to do right, that. Right. Um, I know there are some people who who totally groove on that. Like, look, you failed your skill check. You don't know. Cthulhu eats the world. Everything went pear shape. Y'all fucking die. I know <laughs> I've got players. I got players of mine who totally groove on that. But generally speaking, most people do not want to, especially a convention game or even at a home game. Say, well, you know, you failed this difficulty check. Everybody falls off the bridge and falls in the lava, and everybody dies. Now, granted, some again, some groups dig on the TPK feeling of it, but by playtesting it, you get to find out is that TPK event incongruous to the rest of the adventure, which is not built with that old school too fucking bad you can't roll you all die perspective was did have the you know did have a different vibe and all of a sudden bam smash cut to death you know that can be a really heavy to drop on people even if you're not using a specialty rule right just using your, the regular rules of the game making sure that you've implemented them properly because to your point for someone's going to read the words you wrote and then uh, try to use them as they're written i mean we have to assume they're going to try it as written and um, we have to at least be able to say, yeah, it normally works. And wow, it does suck that your group couldn't roll above a two all night. Sorry about that, brother. You know. Yeah. An- an- another thing. Um, hold on, I just totally blanked out on my thought. It was a good one too. <laughs> 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 um, oh, I, I, when I think about um, um, rules, you know, from a rule book, the other thing is you have to understand the the familiarity that the players and the DM are going to have with that rule set. And the reason I bring that up is like with Killer of Giants. You know, uh, Reed, Reed has created, it's not a brand new rule set. He's been publishing through Crawling Under a Broken Moon for a while now. But with the Kickstarter, with the, uh, it's called the American Survival Guide, there are some new rules. The armor rule I mentioned earlier in the show. And um, <clears throat> I have to, as I'm writing that, I'm kind of kibitzing with, with, uh, with Reed and asking, okay, so here's this new armor rule rule how how much in depth do you want me to go into this in the module because you know the the module's going to come out with the kick with the, with the actual rule book right simultaneous release and so people are not going to be familiar with the rules because they aren't there yet so I, you know it's something that i that i struggle with and and i don't have a good answer you know do i <clears throat> do i explicitly repeat and call out the rules again in the module or do i just say there's rule X, you know, refer to the book. And, yeah, and re- I, I don't re- have a good reference, the drowning, for that. reference the drowning. Reference the yeah. swim thing. Yeah, okay. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't have a good answer for that one. And so I, I kind of go back and forth. And I think Reed and I are both kind of struggling with this right now, actually. So, Sean, I'm going to, th- I'll make throw this at you, man. When you're reading uh, through a pre published adventure or whatever, I know what my, my preference is. Do you have a preference as to whether or not the rules are called out as to how they work in the adventure text, or do you prefer them to reference back to the core book? Uh, it'd be nice if everything was one in one spot, but that's why they get you to get the, to buy the main books yeah, typically. True. All right. I mean, hey, you need the you need the following books or rule books to play this adventure, and then of course, you know, even well in third party, you can't really help it because the third party doesn't have, you know, the ability to reference. Well, that may be debatable too. If the rules are, you know, open gaming license and they're all on the internet, but at the same time, I'm sure they don't want to tread on anybody. Yep. You know, write up an adventure and then get into trouble because they're putting material in there that they shouldn't be and they have to reference the rule books. And that's how you get people to buy the rule books. But uh, I do 
So the short answer, goddammit, Brett, <laughs> is that I want it all in one spot so that I could just say, oh, it's drowning or they're crossing the river and they, you know, here's the DC if they fail or whatever the check is. And they fail, these are the repercussions, whether it's a table or just short verbiage. Yeah, well, nobody wants to open a book, a third, a second book and reference it or whatever. Well, that's kind of the downfall but, of, of D&D Second Edition, wasn't it? AD&D, because you had all those splat books. I mean, there were a million of them. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, even for collectors, but if you're actually going to play the game and you have to go and reference three other books to figure out what your character is capable of doing, people that got tedious. You know, people were just well, like, I'm, "I'm done." Three o three five riffs, GURPS. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a ho- there's a host of them. That, I mean, so many game systems suffered uh, splatbook hell. Um, but you're absolutely right, and I I'm with you, Sean. I my preference is that as many of the rules as possible are called out. The one thing that I don't mind it if the rules get a little shorter shrift. What I cannot stand is when the bad guys, the monsters, don't have their stats in the adventure itself. That drives me bananas. I never want to have to go back and look up a skeleton from the monster manual. I want it in the fucking adventure. People do that? I haven't seen yeah, that. I, I have seen that. Oh, man, that would make me crazy. I'd be writing nasty letters to that author. <laughs> you got to yeah, have it. Yeah. You got to have it at the table in front of you. I mean, that's that's the whole function of an adventure, right? It's It's... It's to have it at the table and, and to be able to, you know. I just I do recall some of the older modules where it'd be like, you know, your wandering monster chart is like, you know, five giant centipedes, six rats, whatever it is. And their stats aren't in there. At least huh, not to I, my knowledge I've off the top of my head. That, I've seen ones that, that did have the stats in there for those things. But I don't, I don't recall ever seeing one that did. I mean, I, they, they probably exist, but boy, I, I'd be writing nasty letters. Because, you know, I don't want to go – I mean, think about it. You know, I, I, I pack up my stuff. I drive over to Misty Mountain or my fr- friendly local gaming store, and uh, and I'm and I'm at the table, right? And I'm, I'm playing, and it's like, okay, wandering encounter. Somebody rolls that six. I roll on the chart. I'm like, okay, giant rats. Giant rats. Giant rats. What are the stats? You know? What the fuck? If I did monster manual because I didn't think I needed it, then, you know, I – Ugh. I mean, yeah, you make it up as you go. I, I you know, if a, a good DM will, will do that, but why, why put them through that panic? You know, I have actually. I cannot recall the adventure itself, and I wouldn't. I don't want to blast the author, uh, but I, it was an older three o three five adventure I, I purchased off a of drive through a while ages back, hmm. and uh, it had it like referenced monster manual pages and that type of thing. And I think what was trying to happen is they're trying to like limit word count or something along those lines, but. If for for the love of all that is sacred and holy or unholy, please God, don't do that. That's just a that, <laughs> no, that, that's one of those things. That if you're going to have those critters in there, they need to have their stats. And yeah. even your random NPCs, sometimes it's not a big deal. Like, oh, there's a grocer, there's a green grocer. You don't necessarily have to have you know birth of the green grocer stats, but <laughs> your key NP your key NPCs, somebody who you're pretty sure, especially through playtesting. Um, that the characters have interacted with on a regular basis, or that they've tried to use the city guard as muscle, or they've they they try to get the thief who you initially only thought was supposed to be a just a plant for for intel suddenly becomes a hireling. You know, You're like fuck. Okay, it's good to put those types of statistics into this into the write up as well, just so people understand what the hell they're what the hell they're about. And again, part of the reason for for me buying a pre gen adventure is I want to take some of the prep burden off of me. Yeah, I read it, but I don't have a certain amount of work is done for me. That's why I'm buying it. It takes a load off of me as a game master. So having those rules pieces in there, knowing that it's been play tested accordingly for 
standard mechanics plus specialty mechanics. It's got the monster stats in it and so forth. That just makes everything a hell of a lot easier for me as a game master. And uh, I'm going to look back and say, hey, you know, the forest guy writes good shit. I'll buy, more, I'll buy another one of his because it has all the right things I want in it. Mm-hmm. Well, and another beef that I have is the... We kind of touched on this before, Brett, I think. And it has to do with well, any module, any paper product, you have to lay it out in a particular manner. So you have layout decisions to make. So going back to just this particular topic with NPCs or monsters in there, you know, there are, say, Paizos, for example. They do an adventure path. They put a lot of monsters in the back of the of the adventure, Right. So they list it out and then maybe they have an NPC in there. Maybe they have a brief reference to the monster, but the full stat block may be in the back. And that's kind of part, part of their layout as in you're getting an extra monster that may not be in the bestiary. So they kind of put it in what they would maybe consider an appendix, appendix for that adventure, which is fine. You got to put it in there. You got to put it in somewhere. Do you put it right next to the encounter that in, has that monster or do you put it in the back? You get it in an electronic format, and it doesn't matter because it doesn't have to be like page by page, right? Because when you get digital, you could just put hyperlinks in there, and you go, oh, it's this monster. You click on the link, and it brings up the monster, and then it says back, and then you hit back, and it goes back to the text. So I just drives me utterly nuts having to like, okay, I've got to put a sticky note here and a sticky note here so I can flip back between the two so I can reference like, all right, what's going on? Okay, now I got the monster in front of me. Okay, now I got to go back to this. Oh, all right, that sounds great. I don't yeah, know. nothing, nothing kills nothing kills gameplay faster than flipping pages. No shit. <laughs> Seriously, that is very I, true. I mean, that's I, mean, I think that goes to the economy of the writing, right? We we touched on that kind of at the beginning, right, Forrest? I mean, if if I vomit out everything about the city state of Avalon, how big it is, how cool it is, and blah blah for a con game, at a certain point, somebody buys this and goes, "Wow, this is really cool." And they got to cut through the first 15 pages to get to the action. The fuck are those 15 pages doing there, right? If you don't need this to get you into the game, it doesn't deserve to be in the book, especially when it comes to an adventure scenario. It just doesn't need to be there. I got got an idea. Yeah? So you have on a tablet or a computer screen or whatever the app is, and on the left-hand side, you have, say, the encounter details, the room description. You start reading blah, 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 blah. You enter the room. It's 10 by 10, whatever, whatever. And then you have – so you have the block text. And then after that, you have kind of like in this room, in this room, the players aren't don't realize it, but this, this, and this is happening or whatever, right? And then on the right side, you have tabbed like cascaded windows that says monster stats or NPC stats mm-hmm. or this NPC. And then you just click each tab on the right hand side, but the left stays the same. Oh man, somebody market this. That, that, makes, Where is it? Wait, that makes great sense, but that's a that's a whole lot like real work there, getting that set up. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I wonder if there is a market of just taking old adventures, rewriting them in a format that makes just more sense. You can there do probably it. is. Totally can do it. It's just in my copious amounts of spare time. That's what I'll do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> probably can do it, but I can't make any money off. Of it. <laughs> There's that. <laughs> Yeah, it's usually this is uh this is not I guess I was gonna say last I checked, Forrest has not quit the day job and is now a no. professional adventure writer. No, no, it's, no, not is, by any means. 
This is not where the this is not where the big bucks lie, right? So no, that's yeah, that's uh, and and, and uh, you know it's been emphasized in other places before, but yeah, if you if you uh, have the notion that you're going to publish something, especially third party, and make a mint, uh, you're not. Sorry, you're just not. <laughs> so the other thing, just and it, I don't know why this brings us to mind, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. I think the gamers in we have a very high. Um, we have high expectation of what we think it should be written. We people, you, I mean, this is where the the a hole reviewer comes in. Clearly, these rules have never been play tested. Mister Blazinski, Mister Gary, obviously don't know what they're talking about here. Mister Gary doesn't know this. <laughs> blah, blah. I mean, some d- dickhead is out there saying this stuff, right? And I think <clears throat> what sometimes people fail to realize is that a lot of these adventures and so on and so forth are there. It's not always a full time job. It's something that people are doing. We love the hobby. We're doing the best we can. And I think that constructive criticism would be a hell of a lot more helpful to the author, like some of the things that Sean just threw out. Like, hey, I really like the rules all where you can get them. Maybe it's not feasible for me to do that or the next author to do it, but that is a more helpful piece than saying clearly you haven't done you know, that demonstrative you suck type of feedback. So. Yeah, it's um, easy. It's easy to, to, to throw blame. And, you know, I, I, I find that those people, they're, they're rare, thankfully. And most of them, their full-time job is uh, playing video games in their mother's basement. <laughs> there's, there's a friend number of that. <clears throat> so I guess let me let me do a, another bit of a contrast here, and I don't I don't want to drag this out forever. Although I'm sure the three of us could keep going all night. But <laughs> so when you're writing for yourself, I think you don't have to worry so much about feel of the adventure, the the tone, the setting, because a lot of that stuff is there. However. I do believe that it would be helpful, even if you're writing an adventure for your own home group, and Sean, I've mentioned this on the show before, is <clears throat> when you're writing even for yourself, if you want to change the tone, if you want to make sure you, like, it, even using words like very tense or dark and brooding or just sometimes whatever the cliche phrase is or even very creative phrase you use, whatever, don't be afraid in your own notes, excuse <clears throat> me, in your own prep, your own writing, to Remind yourself of the feel, the tone, and all those pieces of the game that you're trying to get through that session. Because sometimes, depending on what you're doing, the session may change from a very lighthearted romp through the forest where you met these great um, NPCs, everything was fine, and now you're off to the dungeon of internal death. And once you've changed and you've gone there from one session to the other, sometimes you need to flip the script a little bit on the tone. And when you're doing that, for whatever reason, or if there's components of the tone you want to change, don't be afraid to keep that in your own writing for your own sanity and your own remembrance sake. Because I know well, the, it's very important. It's very important in a published one, but even for yourself privately, don't be afraid. Not don't be afraid to do it. Sorry, Forrest. But no, no, that's fine. I was interrupting. Sorry. Uh, but in in the best published adventures, those are the ones that can do that without overtly doing it. Where it's just it's mm-hmm. just the the descriptive text. I think of Ravenloft. You know, the descriptive text in the early Ravenloft modules is just so good. Um, it creates the mood without having to say, hey, we're trying to create a mood, right? It's there are certain true. words that they use. There are certain phrases that they use. There are uh, uh, mental pictures that they paint by the descriptions that they give. And you get the mood. Um, Call of Cthulhu, again, does that very well. Um, you 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 know, it's, it doesn't have to say, we're going to, you should be scared now, right? That's, <laughs> no, it's not. Right? It just doesn't, that doesn't need to need to be part of it. Um, so the, the, anyway, the, be, the best, what I, the, the ones that I prefer anyway, the most are, are the, the published adventures that can create that mood 
just with the text that's there, just the descriptive text without having to be calling it out, you know, and that's, that's, well, that's a very, not an easy skill to, to, to learn to write that way. No, it's that's not. a very good point, Forrest, about how much do you put in there? Like, how do you, like, how much do you need to spell everything out versus just let the damn players' minds kind of fill in their own, the blanks, right? Right. Does it have to be so descriptive or, you know, so there's a trade off like how heavy you get into it versus theater of the mind and let the theater of your mind just make that fill those gaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So I think when you're doing it for yourself, it's very easy to be very direct and blunt saying, you know, make sure they're scared. It's dark here. You know, it's sunny and happy. Just those are fine. But when you want to turn that into something that you turn over to a public to consume, um, I sure as hell wouldn't want to pick up a, a module or an adventure of any kind and read it and say, players should be scared here. I'm like, well, what if they're not? <laughs> you know, exactly. give, me, give me the things that I will, f- I can figure it out as you very adequately said for us is through the tone, through the writing itself and the word choices. And this is where it's not just using very direct words saying, oh, it's very simple. Just go, hey, you know, Chris Nizek, when you're writing this adventure, make sure everyone's scared. Um, okay, how? And part of it is the, that's the other trick too, is taking time. I know my group. I know how to scare them. Um, I know my group. I know how to make them giggle. I know how to do this stuff. When you're trying to evoke a thing, it does behoove you to spend time uh, making sure that everybody gets it, what you're trying to uh, to evoke through the process. But absolutely to Sean's point is the last thing you want is 15 pages of belaborment that are absolutely useless. So you kind of got a, you know, n- newspaper Ernest Hemingway it and just hack the shit out of it and get, get it down to its meaty parts. And um, the other thing to do, obviously, I mean, Forrest is, is copy shit, right? Even if you're not into Call of Cthulhu, you find that really good Call of Cthulhu adventure, read it, understand how they use the wording. Mm-hmm. And you can, you could follow that same, approach for your D D game or your star frontiers game or your oh, yeah. classics game just take the same approach it's a template basically it's 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 funny when you when you write like that you, it's kind of a you're wrestling with a two-headed serpent because on one hand um <clears throat> you have the the mechanics need to be very explicit and they need to be very clear and logical and 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 kind of cut and dried but the tone of the setting and the and the atmosphere should not be mechanical so it's it's uh, like I said, writing writing for publication for adventures it's, it's not easy. Um, you have to you have to kind of have a, a multi multi variant is that the word I'm looking for skill set. <laughs> it's 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 not it's not you know some of it is playing technical writing you know and but then there's the other side that's the creative side and and you have to be careful not to overblow one or the other. That's a very good point. There adventure writing or actually game writing in general, is um, you don't often have, and not that every computer game has this, but you have somebody who writes the storyline and somebody who writes the code, right, to yeah. make sure you can't bump into the wall and that the ogres attack the first person to cast Fireball or whatever the hell it is they do. Um, these are smaller press. You're doing it yourself, and you're basically running both sides. Somebody may check, cross-track your uh, mechanics for you or make sure that, hey, yeah, this totally works to have this armor-rusting um, you know, mini mini game mechanic within this system, great, good on you. But you're dead right for us. There's a there's a technical writing. Like, look, here's how you march through this complicated combat. Here's how you deal with the fact that time is gone all you know, kitty wampus, fucking crazy here. 
versus, oh, it should feel like you're in the back, you know, you're in the back of a, you know, wizard van <laughs> adventuring through time and space. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's two totally different styles of writing there. And to make the two marry up is an art form. It's not very easy to do. Yeah, you have to be a little schizophrenic to be a writer for adventures. That's, <laughs> you just, you have to have kind of a split personality in some ways. That totally makes sense. All right, Sean, you got anything else, man? No way, man. All right, I think we've hit this one pretty good. Forrest, thank you very much. We'll go into dire hole here, but uh, thanks for having me on. This was great, man. No, this is great. I really appreciate the insight and your thoughts on it too. So this, and and I'm I'm curious for you to revisit that. You know, when you're done with with your project, Brett, I want to I want to hear what you have to say. You know how how it turned out and what your experience was like. Oh, I will. <laughs> Probably <laughs> be in a corner with a bottle of whiskey complaining about what it feels like. Catatonic. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's get into die roll. All right. Die roll. Brett, what do you got this week? Even um, Forrest is partaking. Yeah, I've only got one. I have, there was a, uh, there's this isolated medieval graveyard where somebody had buried a porpoise. Um, they're not quite sure how or why, but yes, a porpoise, <laughs> dolphin-like creature buried. Um, looks like it wasn't like dumped in a hole from what they can see. That was like properly prepared and buried there. And, uh, that's the type of shit I read this and I keep thinking this is like a bizarre, um, if not a Cthuloid thing, it's a mystic world. Um, it just makes me scream of something that if I had Ken Height sitting next to me, we'd be riffing on what, why you're burying porpoises. Um, <laughs> and there's gotta be a reason. And I'm pretty sure there are, um, reptoids and other things involved, but it's absolutely <laughs> gameable. So there you go. P- medieval porpoise burial. Sean, over to you. Ah, <laughs> uh, submit your gumshoe character sheets. It's for the gumshoe character app, uh, that I th- believe they are. Using submissions to help out with the app, create the app. It's a way to make it better. So if you're a gumshoe player and you want a gumshoe app and want to make it better, and you've got some character sheets that have worked for you, Pelgrim Press wants to know. Uh, it's a partnership with the, the site that I get a link to. Uh, number two, happy 80th birthday to the Hobbit. 21st of September was 80 years. Very cool. Wow. The Hobbit, Hobbit that dropped. Crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been around that long and um, still really, really cool. Hopefully we'll be around for the 11th birthday. That That's <gasps> going to be – that's what I want. I, oh, you're dead right. That's great. I got to get like – if we survive that long, it's got to be like a whole batch of us partying like Hobbits somewhere. That's what's going to be. <laughs> I'll still be working, so I'm sure. <laughs> I, think, well, I, think I think we, we all will. Fine. Uh, number three goodman games provides an update into the borderlands so for those of you that are not aware goodman games announced at gary con last year that they would re make some of the original that was this year modules march of this year was this year yeah it was it was 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 at uh at gary con 2017 yeah i was there um I think because next year would be the next gary con that's correct last year but anyways, they, it's little, kind of more finicky than some people might be led to believe. So if you want some updates, look at Goodman Games, uh, subscribe to them on Twitter and get those updates. But I thought it was kind of interesting. Talked about, you know, the, the OCR wasn't like, you 
know, they were old. I mean, they're not scanned for optical character resolution, so the, it's not text. And then they had to change that and some of the art. So I thought it was interesting. It was. I was, I was there as well, Forrest, for the what's new with Goodman Games. It was a really interesting right. talk. And to listen to um, um, uh, all the guys there talking about it. And uh, it was really cool. That was, was fascinating. Really cool. It really was fascinating. All right, Forrest, what you got this week? So um, I had to I had to ask permission of you guys to <clears throat> share something that's new to me, but probably old to a lot of other people. And that is, uh, I picked up the book recently, Stealing Cthulhu by Graham Walmsley. And oh, that book is awesome. Yeah. It is awesome. I had no idea. I, 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 you know, I heard rumors here and there. I didn't pick up the PDF, um, just <laughs> mostly because I, I saw the cover and I was like, wow, that's awesome. I got to have that in hard copy. So... Um, through the Goblin Emporium on Google Plus, I was able to secure a copy. So I just read that, did a, a little pithy review uh, on my uh, blog about it. Good luck finding a hard copy; they're really hard to find. Yeah, I got um, one at uh, I got one at Gen Con the year it came out. Yeah, <laughs> so and, very lucky. Yeah, I should have bought a case was, of them because I could be making money. I was just lucky, right, right, right person, right time. Uh, somebody was like, "Yeah, you know, I've been wanting to sell." Them. I'm like, "Okay, game on. <laughs> How much do you want?" Uh, but really, it's it's fantastic, and it's all about uh, stealing stories, plots, creatures uh, from from Lovecraft stories and others uh, as well. Uh, I think there's a, a Ramsey Campbell story they reference there, and uh, it, it it essentially <laughs> says take everything that these uh, authors wrote, mash it up in a blender, and start pulling bits out and putting them together and see what you get. Um, that's that's the the really crude version of it, but it actually is. Fantastic! If you're looking for, and I, I'm thinking not just for, um, for adventures, but also just for writing fiction because I do that too. Um, you know, it's 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 kind of almost like a uh, uh, William Burroughs cut up uh, method of of creating fiction. Um, so anyway, it's 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 really cool. Got to read it. The PDF's available at RPG now. Um, and again, good luck finding a hard copy. You can have mine if you pry it for my cold dead hands. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not getting it. <clears throat> then the other thing I had was um, that there's a record number of flying humanoid sightings over Chicago this year. I as, had heard this. As opposed to previous uh, years where there, there weren't as many flying humanoid sightings, but apparently there's one. There's some every year, I guess. Yeah, so, this was on um, – uh, what the hell? Ken and, Ken and Robin talk about stuff covered as well because, of course, Ken's in Chicago. But he talked about it a little bit, and I was—I have not mentioned it on the show before, so I'm glad you brought this up. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I, I who knows what's going on? I'm, I'm thinking people with drones are just messing with people. But in any case, <laughs> in any case, hashtag roll for initiative, right? That's awesome. I hadn't thought about that fact, but yeah, somebody with a drone just kind of flying around this <laughs> bat, this bat winged humanoid. This is gonna be funny. Yeah, because oh, you can. Awesome. Why not? Well, of course, why not? That's awesome. <laughs> All right. We had a couple from listeners. Matt Bonhoff provided us with some nightmare fuel about Oscar the modular body. It's a video. It's disturbing. That's little really disturbing. Of, little bits of body with like battery attached so you can kind of click it together and make a little body that is like an appendage that flips and flops. And it's uh, very uh, reanimator. That's <laughs> what it feels yeah. like to me when I watch yeah. that. I'm like, oh, that's fucking creepy. Um, especially the horrible, sickly, veiny, lumpy 
parts. It's gross. Anyway, um, Michael Parker told us about these horrible undersea jelly blobs that will no doubt kill us all. So a link in the show notes there. There's always the ocean has nothing but shit that wants to kill us. So just one more <laughs> proof of that. And uh, let's see. Oh, Eli Kurtz had uh, has mentioned some more about the X card. Now it's evolved over time. So the X card we've talked about that on the show before too. Kind of one of those pieces that when you're at convention games, especially and sometimes even at home games, it's a handy way to have people who um, might want to opt out of a thing, whatever that might be in your game, um, or a, a game someone else is running, where you can just kind of tap the card and stop the action for a moment. So kind of a cool read. Anything else, Sean? No, I don't think so. Uh, what are we talking about? Oh, actually, there is one more thing. What do you got? Skill check. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I don't have it. I don't have an intro for a skill check. <laughs> That's okay. It. We don't need one. Since uh, Forrest is a guest on the show, Forrest, are you ready for skill I'm, check? I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. Let's go. Let's play skill check. All right, Forrest, GM or player? Uh, actually, player. Whoa. Surprise, huh? Yeah, right. actually, I'm very surprised. That's It's because I'm lazy. That's why. <laughs> well, well, you know. <laughs> Points for honesty. Points for honesty. Players usually are, Forrest. Um, fighter, magic user, thief, or cleric? Thief. Absolutely thief. I knew that was coming. I, I follow you on G+. <laughs> <laughs> PC, de- uh, PC death. Great for story or please don't kill my character? Oh, great for story. Rules lawyer, power gamer, or what is that last one I have? AC Tor? What? Actor? What is that? Actor. Actor. That's what it is. Actor. Um, my enunciation and my spelling is like, oh my God. Let's yeah. see. Rules lawyer, no power. I'd have to go with actor of those three. Actor. Yeah. Uh, rule zero, or I'm a player and I have equal rights. What do you mean by rule zero exactly? Uh, GM's always right, man. No. Uh, mm. right? Rule zero <laughs> is the GM. You defer to the GM. I'll say Whatever the GM. Tending towards rule zero. Oh. Favorite RPG? Oh my gosh! I boy, I, I I can't. Can I give you three? My like my top three. Top two. Top top us. two. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics, Call of Cthulhu. What edition of Call of Cthulhu? Uh, seventh Ed. Ooh, really? Yep. Love the new one. Love it. Oh. Last one. RPG you are playing in the next week or month? Let's see. Um, DCC and AD and D second edition, uh, and possibly Delta Green. Is that in the next month or next week? That's in the next month. Next month. I wish okay. I wish I had that much time to game in a week. Oh no! I mean, I I've heard crazier things. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, <laughs> I think my wife would not like that very much. That'd be marriage limiting maneuver. Exactly. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for being on the show for us. We certainly appreciate it. Thanks for being a patron of the show. Also, oh, you bet. And thanks for having me. Really appreciate the invite. So if they could find you and they want to know more about Forrest or what Forrest is doing, where do they find you? Where do they go? What things do you have going on? So you can go to, well, first of all, I should state the spelling of my name 
so you know. It's F-O-R-R-E-S-T. And my last name is spelled A-G-U-I-R-R-E, although it's pronounced Aguirre. So, Forrest Aguirre. Uh, if you go to uh, Twitter, I'm at, at Forrest Aguirre. And on Google Plus, I'm there. You'll find my uh, icon with my me wearing my fez. Um, also, I have a blog over at forestgary.blogspot.com. And yeah, that should give you plenty of opportunities to interact. Glowburn. Oh, and Glowburn. Glow yes, how did I not mention that? Yeah, I'm also one of the co hosts of the Glowburn podcast. Um, and you can find that at Glowburn on Twitter or uh, Google Plus is a good place to look as well. There's a Glowburn community there. Sweetness. Thank you again so much for us. We appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Brett, what are we what are we talking about next week, Brett? Well my buddy Tom Flanagan and I were uh bullshitting on the uh on the chat the other week and uh I said, You got an idea? What are you what are you thinking of for topics? What should we talk about? And he said, You know what? How about re energizing your game? So hey, Sean, we're gonna talk about re energizing that game of yours. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, what we're gonna like do. the energizer bunny. Exactly. Get you hopping. But uh, on your game. Sweet. All right. So this has been another episode of Gaming NBS. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett. Good night and good gaming all. This episode of Gaming NBS brought to you with the help from the following patrons. Christian Sexy Voice Serrano, Kevin Lovecraft, Joe Swick, Brett's Biggest Fan, Jeff Rademacher, Forrest Aguirre, Mark Anthony Benedetti, Eric Jeppesen, Andy Hall, Sean Nicholson, Tim Jensen, Knights of the Night Crew, Palladian, Remy Bellado, Jason Hobbs Hobbs, Wayne Humphrey, James Carpio, Doc Caprio, Pure Mongrel, Lord Tentacle, Corey Johnston, Eric Tankar, Brandon Barnes, Tim Shorts, Dan LaValley, C.W. Mellencamp, Lost Sailor, Graham Miner, Todd McGowan, Roger Brassett, Misdirected Mark Productions, Old School DM, Jason, Christopher Gray, Finolf, Merkel Froelich, Eileen Barnes, Tony Sugarloaf Baker, Todd Crapper, Jim Fitzpatrick, Michael Drescher, Wiss Static, Alexander Auerbach, Rodrigo Beowulf, Neil Benson, Ron Blessing, Chris Steele, Eric DeHoff Hoffman, Jared Rasher, Soldiers of Misfortune RPG, Christopher Lang, Curtis Takahashi, Gordon Cranford, Mark Tasaka, Larry Hout, Evan Harrison Cass, Ray Otis, Mark CMG Clover, Eli Kurtz, Ron Bishop, Stefan Dragonspawn, The Closet Gamer, John Hammersley, Craig Humer, Huber, Xavier Gielmain. I believe I did that right. For the cost of a coffee shop coffee, you could support the entire show for a month. Consider heading over to GamingNBS.com forward slash Patreon. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thanks, patrons. Thanks, friends. This This has has been a Litterbox Studio production. production.